Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, everyone, and welcome to DevRaga Personal Finance episode 47. Now, this is going to be a summary episode. And the reason why it's going to be a summary episode is because right about 12 months ago, I started podcasting about personal finance. Um, So today, or this week, marks the one-year anniversary since I first started podcasting ever. I've never done any podcasting before, Um, you know, maybe a little bit here and there for, um, you know, medical examinations and registrars, but nothing like this in the past. So it's been a really um, wonderful experience. It's been a great learning experience about the technology of podcasting, obviously, but it's also been a fantastic experience about going on a journey of learning about some personal finance concepts, which I've been using in my own life and have been learning in my own life and trying to consolidate it for my own life and personal financial situation. But in the process, um, I've made it into a bit of a journey that can be shared um, online, and I've had a fair bit of positive feedback um, from listeners and also readers of my Facebook page and also my comments on Facebook and also uh, through other Facebook forums and also on Whirlpool. So thank you very much for the support and also some of the advice that you have um, given me over the year, uh, which I've hopefully turned into some of the skills that I've developed to be used in the podcasting episodes. So... The motivation behind this podcast channel is basically it's a learning experience. It's not a financial advice channel. I'm not a financial advisor nor claim to be. The aim is to learn basic principles of personal finance, which can be applied in your life, or at the very least, when you seek financial advice from an advisor, you're armed with some basic information to lay your foundations of finances on. So the worst thing you can do is go to a particular accountant or financial advisor, even tax planning or even insurance broker, and not be armed with the amount of information that you probably should be armed with so that you can ask the specific questions and make good educated um, decisions rather than just relying on a third party to give you all the information. They may not give you all the information, and in some cases, they may actually give you wrong information. So you've got to be a bit careful about you know who you approach, how you approach, and arming yourself with information and learning about it is the best way uh, for you to uh, you know approach this situation. So why go into a meeting blind when you can actually be armed with information which is useful for you? And of course, learning something is for life. It's not a single learning experience. This is an ongoing journey. So, you know, the whole point of this podcasting channel is for me and also to people and listeners who I talk to or listeners who I, um, you know, email, etc., for them to learn from this experience as well. So how did it begin? Well, basically, I wanted to learn myself. So as I was learning and reading about some basic financial concepts, I found they're suited to my lifestyle. And this is what I've been doing for the last 10 years. So refreshing to think that what I was doing over the last 10 years wasn't something random that I was made up by myself, that there are systems and principles in place which reflect what I was doing. So basically, when I first started doing things, I just did it, you know, my own way. And then 
now I've kind of realized going, well, my own way was kind of what other people were doing as well. Um, but, um, I just didn't have a name to it. I didn't have a process to it. It's just my own little way of doing things. And it turned out that, yeah, um, my concepts that I was using, there was actually widespread concepts about. I didn't Google it. I didn't learn from others. I just did it my own way. And it turned out okay. It's probably not a great strategy. If I was doing it again starting today, it kind of turned out okay, but it could have ended up really, really horrible. So I suggest when you're doing something like this, you try and learn yourself, um, you know, have a structure, have a strategy and learn from others before embarking on a journey, particularly when it comes to your personal finances. And it's extremely important that you do that. Now, because I was a relative novice in this, um, so uh, then I started doing more and more research later on in the 10 years, and I decided that I needed to refine it and I needed to learn more, so I started podcasting, and I did a few episodes. Um, then I floated it to a few colleagues privately uh, before making it public and asked them to have a listen and comment and provide me with some feedback. Um, now, if you look at some of the earlier episodes, the structure is a little bit different. So, um, you know, I was you know nervous when I was podcasting, so didn't really know what to write, didn't really have points of scripts or anything like that. Then they came back to me with some positive feedback, mm-hmm. some negative mm-hmm. feedback. Um, I floated it to more people and got some positive feedback as well. And as I did more and more topics and more episodes, I found more new topics to discuss about. And I went deeper and deeper into economic concepts and how it related to my personal financial journey and how it can help the average Joe when it comes to learning about their personal finances. Now, then it got to about 10 episodes, and and I still really think to this day, the first 10 episodes are probably the foundations you must listen to before listening to any of the other episodes after that, especially for the newbie. The episodes build on themselves, particularly um, using some of the concepts and financial principles early in the 10-episode series. And I think you could realistically listen to the first 10 episodes and then be done with it all, because that's pretty much all there is to basic financial concepts. The keep it simple, stupid rule applies. Everything after episode 10... I would classify as moderate to advanced financial concepts. You know, not super advanced. You know, we're still looking at personal finances, not finances related to businesses or tax structures or trusts, etc. But um, everything after the 10-episode mark is going to be a little bit more complex for the average Joe. So you need to listen to the first 10 episodes, go back, rewind, master those concepts before moving on afterwards. And I think... Like I said, realistically, you could listen to the first 10 episodes and just desubscribe to this channel if you wanted to, because I think that's all you need to know personally. Then I got a few messages on Facebook, and I started the Facebook page, Devraga Personal Finance. If you haven't joined it, um, just search for it on Facebook. It's public. And people started sharing it online. Then I got messages on Whirlpool forums from a few listeners, and they'd identified me as a host on the forums. Then this just accumulated more and more discussions and gave me some ideas for more episodes. And here we are, 12 months later, casting my 47th episode uh, almost one every week in the last 12 months. And that's the journey of this financial podcast channel. And I hope to continue to do more episodes in the future to enhance my learning and hopefully yours as well. Now, over the episodes, I've refined the structure of each episode. I'll sort of basically go through some of the structure of it. There's an introduction, you know, the basic premise of the channel. You pay yourself first motto. You save 20% of after-tax income. You invest it. You reinvest dividends and then automate the process. I'll repeat these steps again and again and again. Start, and at the end of the episode, why is it? Why do I do it? There's actually a method to this madness. I think repetition is good. It ingrains concepts, it ingrains this concept into your brain, you're less likely to forget it, you're more likely to implement it, and you're more likely to remember it in the long term. Now, remember, finance is all about behaviors. It's very little about knowledge. 
So you need to be empowered, you need to be educated to be able to change your behaviors when it comes to personal finance. Now, people think knowledge plays a big deal. Trust me, I'm not a financial guru. I'm still a novice. But most of what I've done is all about changing my own behaviors over the last 10 years and automating it in such a way that I have very little time to think about money as such. Everything's just automated, which means I have very little time to ruin my financial goals. And that's why the pay yourself concept works really, really well. If you save 20% of your after-tax income or try to aim to save 20% of your after-tax income off the top of your salary or income, uh, it's money that you don't see. It's money that you can't spend. It's money that you can't touch. It's money you never had, which means you can never spend it. How can you miss something you never had? You can't. Hence, whatever is left over is the 80% of your income. That's your after-tax income. And you can then focus on living within your means. If you can master just, sorry, master this, which a lot of Australians and people overseas can't fathom, basically living within your means, then you can master, I think, about 80% of personal finance. The rest becomes extremely easy. Budgeting becomes extremely easy because remember, you've saved the 20%. Then budgeting of the 80% becomes relatively easy. Saving becomes relatively easy because you've already saved the 20%. You've started investing it off the top. Then spending also becomes relatively easy because you've only got the 80% of your after-tax income to spend. You're not going to be overspending because you don't have the money to spend because you've already put it aside. So the aim is to enjoy life. The aim is not to crunch every cent out of your life. I get a lot of questions about people that are looking at penny things. And don't be penny wise, pound foolish. Look at the big picture. The aim is to look at the big picture. That's really, really important. So I feel that if I repeat this, um, repeat these sort of steps in every episode, that is the pay yourself concept, save the 20% of your after tax income, keep doing it forever, invest it, reinvest the dividends and automate it. I feel that if I just repeat this in each episode, as one listener correctly pointed out recently, it's all they think about now when it comes to personal finance. They're thinking about paying themselves first every time they earn any income. They have multiple sources of income, so they take 20% uh, of all the income that they get of after-tax money and just put it away. It has changed their life. I've actually quite humbled when they said that to me. It has helped them reorganize their finances, and they're in their 50s, and now they see things in a very, very different light. So that's why I do it. I repeat things because I think repetition is a key to learning. Um, now, th- this sort of... S- this is sort of a bit of a habit of mine. I mean, even in high school, uh, even in medical school, when I was uh, given concepts, I kept repeating it. I, I basically wrote it down. I learned it, recited them and wrote it down because I'm far more likely to remember them forever, which means I don't need to study them again and again and again. I tend to believe that when I'm in high school or when I was in medical school, I tended to study things basically just once or twice and try to remember them for the rest of the year for the exams because, you know, otherwise you're just cramming at the end of the year. I'm, I'm not a great crammer. Um, but I, I, I tended to become a bit of a crammer later on when I was doing my fellowship exams. That was a bit of a nightmare. But um, certainly in high school and medical school, I sort of use this repetition model, which I'm trying to, you know, re-grasp and reuse for the, for the financial podcast episodes as well. My physics professor was the first person in high school that taught me this repetition strategy. And I'm really, really, you know, grateful to that. Basically, he said, look, I think you're reasonably good at physics. I think you should go for the year 12 academic medal, which I won, by the way. And basically, he said, what you need to do is when you study, you always revise the previous topics. You repeat it, 
even if it takes you just a few minutes each day, because that repetition will ingrain the concept into your mind, so you, you, you're much more likely and less likely, sorry, to require to study them from scratch towards the end of your exams. And guess what? That strategy worked, particularly when it came to my end-of-year physics exams. Um, and also another sort of anecdotal story that I have uh, from my uh, earlier sort of uh, medical school days, when one of my professors asked me to examine a patient and I'd missed a critical element of a cardiovascular examination. That was called the JVP, which is the jugular venous pressure. Um, it often rises in cardiac failure patients. For all of you medical geeks out there who are interested. And he told me the only reason I missed it was because I had not routinely looked for it. I probably haven't practiced it. I hadn't finessed it. And it's something, you know, that a lot of people may not look for, but you need to practice. You need to get into the habit of seeing for it every single time. And because the patient was relatively young, I thought, well, the chances of cardiac failure is not going to be very high, but turned out they did have some sort of congenital problem and they did end up having cardiac failure. So I thought, no need. I don't need to do that JVP. Well, I was wrong. So hence the saying, more things are missed in medicine by not looking than by not knowing. And that taught me a very valuable lesson and that is practice makes perfect. And by practicing, I would have you know, not miss that JVP. And by practicing, it means repetition and ingraining the processes, the procedures and concepts in your brain. So rehearsal is key. That's why I repeat things a lot on the podcast channel, which may sound a bit over the top, but there's a method to all this madness. The other thing about the channel episode structure is it's all about developing habits for the long term and investing for the long term. So over the 20, 30, 40 years is what I regularly talk about, regularly investing over that time frame and always reinvesting the dividends. Um, that's going to likely lead to long-term gains, which compound. I don't look at my portfolio every day, every week, etc. I don't look at it regularly. I don't care what the market does over even the five or seven-year period. I really don't care. I only want to invest for 30-plus years. This is the minimum. That's my standard that I'm setting myself. Now, you might have a different opinion, and I completely respect that, but I've learned that over the last 10 years, the money that I've lost when I first started investing during the GFT crisis, all that money I've actually made up because of all the dividends that I've received and all the reinvestments that I've done, and just by automating it over the last 10 years, I'm way ahead today than what I started off with 10 years ago. So for me, it's worked out really, really fruitful. It's been extremely, uh, extremely, uh, you know, fantastic from an investment return point of view. But more importantly, over the last 10 years, I've tried to finesse the habits of finances to, to regularly save, to, to basically live within the means and try to invest for the long term. So that's why I sort of set a benchmark of 30 years plus. I don't do anything less than that. If I'm buying something in terms of stocks or investments, I'm keeping it for 30 years at least. That's basically when I'm going to retire, I hope. So, you know, I thought about this, you know, when I was trying to, you know, initially podcast uh, how to structure the episode, what the basic sort of premise and the principles of the podcast channel was. And I thought, well, what are some of the basic principles I would need to know about, which means the listeners would need to know about? And what if you need to know some sort of, have some sort of rule book, some sort of framework to work from? So let's look at the summary of some of the basic concepts you need to know about when it comes to personal finance. And I podcasted this in the past as well. And in this summary episode, I think it's worthwhile. What if you're starting today? What if you're just listening to this episode 47? Well, I'd say go back and listen to episode 1 to 10 first. But let's just summarize what some of the key features of personal finance are so that you've got it in your head that these are things really, really important that you need to do to have it down packed to basically master before you think about some of the advanced concepts. And if you go through some of my episodes, I do talk about some of the geeky economic concepts, some of the advanced concepts that you can possibly be interested in, but there's a complete waste of time mastering that if you haven't mastered some of the basic things. 
So let's have a look at the blueprint. Number one, always save 20% of your after-tax income. I'm not saying save it today or tomorrow. If you can't afford 20% of after-tax income, save something. Start with 5%, 10%. What I find is that if you just did 10% and left it at that, I just don't think that's going to be enough for your retirement. I think 20% is the bare minimum. If you want to save and try to achieve that 20% in the long term, is probably what you need to do to be able to retire very, very comfortably. Now, the best way to do this is to automate it. If you get paid on a Thursday, for example, by Friday morning, 20% of your after-tax income should be set aside and hopefully invested. The money is gone. Boom. It's gone. Never to be seen again until you retire. If you have investment accounts, most have a BPAY facility, so I basically automate everything via BPAY. It's just fantastic. If you don't have an investment account, that's fine. Then at least set it aside into a savings account. And of course, if you have a principal place of residence and a mortgage, then set it aside to offset your interest on the mortgage. Don't set it aside to a savings account that is not linked to an offset account. That's just crazy. If you've got a mortgage and it's a principal place of residence, pay it off. And the way to pay it off is not actually pay the mortgage off. Well, you can if you want to, but basically offset it because it's kind of designed uh, for investment principles later on in life when you try and buy investment properties. We'll move on to a next principal place of residence. Point number two, don't borrow money ever. Okay, that's a bit extreme, I know. But what I mean is don't borrow money for consumer goods or cars having consumer debts for furniture, TV, electricals, cars, holidays. It's just a dumb decision. Just don't do it. Um, Now, I saw an ad the other day on TV and I read about it on the paper. There are some travel companies out there who are offering 12-month interest-free payments on holidays. Now, if you can't afford to pay for a holiday with cash, then you can't afford to go on a holiday. It's as simple as that. It sounds really, really basic, but don't go into this debt trap of interest-free payments. It's rubbish because they're relying on you not to be able to keep up with those payments so that they can really nail you with penalty fees once you go beyond the 12 12 months. So remember, it's 12 months of interest-free. That doesn't mean that you don't pay it off in 12 months. You're meant to pay it off in 12 months. But In all honesty, don't get into consumer debt. If you don't have consumer debts, um, imagine what you'd have. You'd have money, and you can use that money. You can use that 20% uh, of after-tax income and invest and save it for your retirement, for yourself and your family and your loved ones. If you do have consumer debts, as you're listening to this podcast right now, it's okay, but it's not okay. You've got to pay it off quickly. You've got to use the 20% money that you're going to save and any spare money that you have to attack the debt like no other. So you can't eat out until you pay off your consumer debts. You can't go on holiday until you pay off your consumer debts. You know, there's no such thing as going on a holiday because, you know, you've got, um, you know, you've got to have a holiday or whatever, but you've got a car loan. I think just pay off the car loan, you know, do extra shifts or do something because I think consumer debt is basically a wealth killer. Point number three, try and use cash for most things. Um, now, I personally break this rule. What I do is I use credit card for almost everything in my life, but I have the cash to pay it off straight away. So I don't pay it off every month and all that sort of stuff. I just pay it off straight away, particularly for those large payments. Maybe for groceries and stuff, I might pay it off weekly. But but uh, yeah, you know, if you've got the cash and if you've got the credit card, yeah, use, use cash or credit card, whatever it is, but just pay it off quickly. If you want to pay it off within the month, that's completely fine. But I find that if you use cash, you're more likely to spend less because it's physical 
it 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 basically reminds you that when you pay someone cash, that cash never is going to come back into your wallet. Whereas if you use a credit card, it's going to come back into your wallet. So you don't have that same sort of mental sort of uh, I don't know uh, mental um, pain, I guess, uh, particularly when you're buying goods and services. So you know, credit cards and tap pays and Apple pays and Google pays and Paytm's etc. They all make it easy for you to spend money. That's their job. But there's some evidence to suggest that if you use cash, you're less likely to spend it. And if you do spend it, you will spend less of it. It's easy, simple concept. And if you master this, you're likely to just do well with your personal financial situation. Now, think about it. If you have a two-year-old today, by the time they hit their teens, money as a physical item, as in an exchange medium to buy goods and services, may not exist. All they will know about is credit cards and Paytms and you know Google Pays and Apple Pays. Um, so teach them early because they need to know the value of money. Um, now, I know that some of the credit card companies, I think MasterCard and Visa especially, have tried to eradicate cash. Um, uh, they've, they've, they've tried their very best to try and get rid of cash uh, because they've got a vested interest in people not using cash. Uh, like I said, I don't physically use cash every day, but I've got the cash to back up whatever payments I make with a credit card almost instantly. Point number four, investments. Okay, I say invest for the future, but the common question is, what do I invest in? Here are some of the basic principles you need to think about when considering investing. Invest for the long term, 20, 30, 40 years, if not longer, not five or 10 years Never check your investments daily or even monthly. Maybe check on them yearly and rebalance them and reallocate some assets, but don't check on it daily. Trust me, it creates anxiety. Your emotions may get in your way and you may end up doing silly things like selling investments when you shouldn't be when they're actually losing money. To decide what to invest in is entirely dependent on your risk profile. Now, over the long term, Stocks and the share market does reasonably well in Australia. I think it's done well in most Western democracies, but are risky over the short term. Property also does well over the long term because, let's face it, there's not enough land going around in Australia that's actually usable. But over the short term, property can be risky, just like in the last few years where the Australian property market has, you know, quote-unquote, crashed by about 10% or so. Bonds, cash-like term deposits are an option, but they're more conservative Whatever you do, think about it like this. This is the way that I think about investing, okay? Generally speaking, if you invest in something like a business which serves the community and provides a service which is required, then over the long term, you're likely to profit from that business. So, remember we talked about economic moats in previous episodes? If there's a value of a product or services that you're going to use on a daily basis... And if there's a particular business or a range of business or service that's doing that particular product or service, then you're going to invest in that because Australians are going to need to use it pretty much on a daily basis. The other way of looking at it is, if you use a business or service or product from a business almost on an everyday basis, and if you think many Australians are using it daily, then it's likely a good business to invest in. So, do you eat fruit? Do you eat veggies? And do you have cereal and pasta and rice or whatever it is? Where does it come from? Coles or Woolies, two dominant brands of shopping centres in Australia, they sell those products, then yeah, those brands are likely to do well in the future. That's the way that I look at it. Do you brush your teeth every day? Well, what toothbrush do you use or what toothpaste do you use? Is it Colgate? Then yeah, invest in the company that produces Colgate because Colgate in Australia has got a dominant presence when it comes to toothpaste. 
Johnson and Johnson, baby powder. Everyone talks about Johnson and Johnson when it comes to baby powder. So if you can invest in Johnson and Johnson over the long term, you're likely going to do better. Now, I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not providing with specific financial advice. What I'm trying to teach is basically when you ask your question, what am I going to invest in? Well, you need to invest in things that people are going to buy and use and reuse and buy and use and reuse and use their service in the long run. Okay. So, you know, do you use a bank? Uh, do you use their service? Then, yeah, they're likely to do well in the future. And we know that Australian banks uh, are one of the most profitable banks in the future. Do you use petroleum products? Controversial, because as you know, this is an area that's probably going to change in the next 50 years with all the electric cars that are coming onto the market. But in today's world and in the last sort of 50 years or so, petroleum companies have done reasonably well, just as mining companies have done reasonably well, because we use those products on a daily basis. For these reasons, I don't invest in cryptocurrency. Um, you know, or any new fad that comes out because they just haven't proven to me that they will serve the community today or in the future. Now, I could be wrong. So cryptocurrency is one of those things that everyone got on the bandwagon. It basically went up to 21, 22,000, particularly Bitcoin. I think now there's about 50 or 60 different cryptocurrencies, if not uh, probably a lot more, to be honest. Um, but then it kind of crashed. Now it's kind of coming up. But, you know, you go to, you go to the local shopping center, you go to buy some pizza, are you going to be able to pay with cryptocurrency? If the answer is yes, then yeah, I'll take it back. But in Australia, the answer is no. The average business is not going to accept cryptocurrency. Although when I drive to work, uh, I do see a pizza shop that actually says we accept Bitcoin, which is pretty funny. But um, yeah, you know, what happens, uh, they say in 2040, with crypto, uh, 2040 in cryptocurrency is that 21 million Bitcoins will be mined and that's the end and therefore the price is going to skyrocket. Now, all of that doesn't matter if Bitcoin is not the main medium of exchange of currency in the world. If it becomes a main medium of exchange of currency in the world, then maybe yes. But who knows? You know, I don't know the answer to this. You don't know the answer to this. And I don't speculate. I, I invest in businesses. Um, so I don't invest in speculative investments. And I consider cryptocurrency speculative investments. So I don't have any cryptocurrency. Uh, I don't invest in crypto banks or whatever it is. Okay, so... Um, but I know for certainty that I don't know the future, no one knows, so let's see how it pans out. Maybe in 2040, one of your listeners will probably ring me up and say, Raj, you know, Raj, you're wrong, basically, or Devraga, you're wrong. Um, point number five, part of investing is your superannuation. The most basic thing you can do to maximize your super is if you don't need the money straight away, yes, there is a legislative risk, but if you don't need the money straight away, then investing in your super is a very, very, very good tax-efficient strategy. A good case example is the negative gearing fiasco, where basically the legislative risk was basically if the government changes, then I'm going to change all the rules, and it's going to affect negative gearing, etc., etc. Yeah, there was a bit of a scare, but uh, yes, superannuation is uh, potentially liable for legislative risk, but any investment is. Okay, so negative gearing was outside of super, but you're still, um, you know, at risk of legislation changes. Uh, you know, also franking dividends and franking credits was also at risk in the last election. So, yes, people say superannuation you can't touch for 30, 40 years until you retire and there's a legislative risk, but there's a lot of good reasons to invest and maximize your super. Now, if you're maximizing your super, it means that you're investing for the future. And more importantly, if you're on a high tax bracket, greater than 30%, 
then you're instantly saving money. And super contributions are only taxed preferentially at 15%. Remember, it's called the contributions tax. Um, this is called concessional contributions. So if you're on a 40% tax bracket, you're giving yourself an instant 25% tax cut. So if you don't need the money, invest in super. You can maximize it. I think the cap of the concessional contributions is $25,000. Now, if the government wanted you to give you a tax cut, you would take it, right? Well, that's exactly what this is. It's going to be a $25,000 per year or a 25% tax cut if you're on the 40% tax bracket and you're investing into your super and paying that 15% contribution tax. You save 25% instantly. So why not take advantage of it? Now, point number six, mortgage and offset accounts. In today's finances, it's quite simple. If you have a mortgage in Australia and don't have a 100% offset account, then you need to ask yourself, why the hell not? Why don't you have a 100% offset account? The offset account is one of the best ways to save interest in your mortgage. It's easy, and in most cases, it's the same basic savings account that's simply linked to the mortgage. All you need to do is tell your bank to make it an offset account and link it to your mortgage. So if you don't have it, do it right now after this podcast episode. Of course, listen to this podcast first and then do it. Um, point number five, protect yourself and your family. That's part of personal finance. In episode five, I'll talk about all forms of um, personal insurance, life, income protection, TPD, and trauma. I'll talk about stepped versus level premiums. And this is probably one of the most important podcast episodes I've done. We get a lot of questions about this. Um, so it's really important that you protect yourself and your family. If you have a family, if you have dependents, if you have debt and liabilities, and they won't be able to be self-insured to be able to survive if you die or something drastic happens to you, God forbid, then you need to openly discuss insurance options with your family. Part of protecting yourself also is setting up a will or a testamentary trust upon your death or your partner's death. I'll talk about this and go into detail about this in podcast episode number 14. So these are all the first 10 episodes that I've covered, and this is why it's really important to go back and master these concepts and know about them and organize it very, very soon. Point number eight, fees, fees, fees. You must pay attention to fees, superannuation fees, investment fees, uh, fees for accounting, private school fees. No, just kidding. Um, fees make or break your retirement wealth. Okay. So why pay fees to someone who you don't need to and for something for which you don't um, get or for something that you can actually get cheaper somewhere else. Let me put it. To, let me put it to you quite simply this way, right? If you have a bin and you chuck twenty dollars into it for no reason every month because that's the extra fees that you're paying and you don't really have to, um, that's exactly what you're doing. That's just a silly thing to do. Now, if you want to still chuck that twenty dollars into the bin before you chuck it, don't chuck it. Call me. I'll take that twenty bucks off your hands because I'm happy to accept that burden from you. So low-cost index funds, in my view, are the cheapest and most effective and efficient and easy to run administer and can automate when it comes to investments. Their fees are extremely low. Talk to your financial advisor or learn more about it before you talk to them. Uh, I have done episodes on ETFs and index funds and passive and active investing in my earlier episodes. So if you're interested, go back and listen to that. Point number nine, emergency funds. You need to have a $1,000 emergency fund and then you need to think about having a three to six months of emergency funds in the event you can't work due to an illness or something drastic happens in your personal life. Now, remember, it doesn't have to be your illness. It can be your partner or someone in your family. You know, God forbid, had something happens to them 
And that means that you can't work. So if you've got a sick child and you can't go to work, for example, you need to be able to sustain that from form of an emergency fund. Or if the house starts leaking and the insurance says we're not going to cover you, you need to have an emergency fund to try and fix the house leak uh, so that you can actually get back to work. So it's really, really important. Now, yes, this is what income protection is for in case you get sick, but you still need to have an emergency fund, in my opinion, in the event income protection doesn't cover you. We've heard some horror stories, certainly, about people's um, illnesses not being covered by insurance. Uh, And certainly, if you think that may not happen to you, just look what happened at the Royal Commission. They unearthed all these insurance policies, which are basically so basic, and people are getting ripped off and not actually getting anything for them for their premiums that they've paid for many, many, many years. So, uh, you know, it can really impact your ability to work if you become sick and make a living. So don't ignore it. But you need to be consumer debt free before thinking about three to six months of emergency funds. There's no point having three to six months of emergency funds if you're trickling money away in terms of consumer debt payments. Okay, so I would prefer 12 months of emergency funds once you're consumer debt free. Uh, Others recommend eight months. Some people recommend three to six months. It's really up to you. Uh, And also you need to think about whether it's going to be three to six months of expenses on a monthly basis or three to six months of actual income. I tend to think you need to have three to six months of income uh, because, you know, just having expenses may not be... may not be uh, feasible because you're going to have additional expense, medical or other expenses as a result of that. So I think it's got to be three to six months of income. But it really, you need to have three to six months of something is what I'm trying to say. Um, Now, I think at least three months is useful, but ideally 12 months. And lastly, learning. You must learn. I think at the very least, you need to learn about personal finance. Now, let me give you an example. If you're going to go buy a home or a car or a TV or even a mobile phone or a laptop, you will learn about it. You know, I know friends that research about cars for six months before buying them. I have friends that would research about a laptop and a phone for about a month or two before actually buying it. Personal finance is something which can totally destroy your retirement if you did things that are detrimental if you didn't research. You know, something small today can affect you so much uh, big time in the future. So if you're going to research about cars and houses and computers and laptops and mobile phones, why wouldn't you research about personal finance? That's basically the premise of this podcast channel. That's what I'm trying to instill to try and learn myself so that other people can learn, hopefully from me, or, you know, if you have something to offer, if you want to, um, you know, uh, provide an episode, uh, well, sorry, if you want to, you know, tell me to talk about something in my next episode, yeah, I often take requests. Uh, Some of the episodes that I've already done have actually come from some of the requests as well. Uh, The REITs episode was a good example of that. So that's it. Those are the 10 things that you need to master when it comes to personal finance. And these are the 10 things that I talk about in the first 10 episodes of my podcasting channel. So that's the end of it. Episode 47, 12 months of podcasting, one year anniversary. What started off as a random learning adventure has turned out into something just a little bit bigger. Nothing huge or anything like that. Uh, One of the biggest things I'd probably appreciate is if you think you find this podcast channel useful, if you think you find the episodes useful, then I would appreciate if you share it with your friends and family and tell them how important it is. And if you have something to return, if you have something that I could learn from or some of the listeners could learn from, then private message me on Facebook. And of course, join the Facebook page, which is Jevraga Personal Finance. It's public. You can join it just by searching for it. Now, 
I'm nowhere near as big in terms of some of the other financial podcast channels, so this is nothing, but I'm really humbled by the supporting questions people are asking. Uh, it means they're thinking about their personal finances. It means the mission of this channel is being achieved, albeit slowly. All of the growth that we've had is just organic. So thanks for listening. Until next time, guess what? Repetition, pay yourself first, pay yourself 20% of your after-tax income, invest it, reinvest dividends, do it forever, and always automate it. And most importantly, until next time, stay safe. This is Devraga Personal Finance, signing off. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 